The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from the first book of Kings, chapter 18, verses 20 through 40. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as could contain, as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all the things, uh, all these things at your word. 
Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed and the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thanks for that, Charlene. Uh, You're going to go ahead and pray for us, is that right? Okay, thank you. (laughs) So let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word by the power of your spirit, soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence, sharpen our minds, that we may discern your truth, shape our wills, that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Thanks again. And next week, we'll just have you read the whole Old Testament. How's that? (laughs) Great job. Longest scripture reading in the history of Christ Press Church and maybe any church. Uh, So thank you for that. So today we're continuing our series uh, on Elijah the prophet, and um, and I'll start with a story that's told of a new preacher who showed up uh, to a new assignment at a new church in a new town. And uh, his first week uh, preaching, he decided he was going to preach against the sin of heavy drinking. And after that, after that sermon. Uh, several of the elders of the church approached him and said, you know, you really need to be careful when you talk about heavy drinking and drunkenness and things of that sort because uh, so many of the people in this town work at the distillery, which drives so much of the economy of this town. He said, okay. And so the next week he preached against the sin of stealing. And a couple of elders came to him and said, you know, that one of the people in our church, one of the more prominent people in our church, is actually a bank robber and gives a lot of money uh, to the church. And so we want you to be really careful uh, when you talk about stealing. And he said, okay. So the next week he preached against the sin of lust. And of course, elders come to him and they say, well, you know, there's a men's club, and, and, and a lot of our members, including some of the elders, spend a lot of time there, do their business deals there, etc. so you need to be really careful about, you know, the sin of lust. And then he preached the next week against the sin of coveting, and, and, and again, all the elders come to him this time and said, you know, the economy here is really driven by the casino right down the road, so you've got to be really, really careful uh, when you talk about the sin of coveting. Then he said, you know what, I've been here for four Sundays, and it seems like I can't get it right. What should I preach on? And and the elders got together, they had a meeting, and they said, you know what, we think you should preach against the sin of cannibalism, because we don't think we have any of those. (laughs) But what the elders didn't understand was that there was this huge gossip problem in the church, and... What the Scriptures say is that that gossiping is similar to biting and devouring your neighbor. 
In other words, there are a whole lot of different ways that you can cannibalize people without actually eating them. You know, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 about the sins of the world and the wrath of God against the sins of the world, and he lists all of these different sins that people commit, and his last question is, what about us? Are we any better? Absolutely not. And so Elijah is that kind of prophet. You don't think you're a cannibal? Yeah, you are. Let me tell you 20 reasons why you're a cannibal. Elijah is a nuisance to King Ahab and to his wife Jezebel, who are deeply committed to what you could call religious pluralism in Israel. They didn't want just one God for the people. They wanted a whole collection of gods that people could choose from because they felt that that would make them more popular, make them more esteemed in the eyes of the people. You be you. Don't let anybody tell you what your God should be like or what your life should be like as a result of following your God, whoever your God might be. And so, so there's this famous confrontation here at Mount Carmel between Elijah, who is uh, one prophet for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Yahweh. And there are 450 prophets of, of the God, the Canaanite God, Baal. Now, Baal is especially a favorite of Ahab and Jezebel because Baal is a generic name for any God, for any God. And uh, if you do a study of the, uh, you know, archaeological study of, of those times in that part of the world, you'll see that there were temples everywhere to any kind of God imaginable. There were gods of the weather, gods of beauty, gods of fertility, military gods, gods of festivity and wine, uh, gods of wisdom, and so on. And what these gods all did, and we, we see it playing out in the text in front of us, is they made demands of you without any promises that they would reciprocate with any kind of blessing because these gods were known to be moody, capricious, um, unpredictable. But what they did was they demanded that you perform for them. And, and we see the prophets of Baal doing that very thing in this text. They cry out to him all day long. They dance for him all day long. And eventually, in the absence of a response, they mutilate themselves to the point of heavy bleeding. The other thing that the Canaanite god Baal demanded at certain times was child sacrifice. So we'll get to that in a minute. But we can say to ourselves, you know, this is so profane. This is so primitive. And aren't we all so thankful that we have advanced beyond this way of thinking and this way of worshiping? And then we've got to ask the question today, just as Elijah pressed the question back then, are we really that advanced? Or did they actually see something that we have ceased to see? And that is, even if you don't claim to worship God, you worship something. You're bowing, and I am bowing at some altar all the time. And so, what we want to do is try to see here what Elijah saw for our own context. Three things. Everybody worships something. 
False worship is a devastating sickness. It's not neutral. And then finally, the reason to go with Elijah's God. So, so let's start with everybody worships something. Everybody bows to a God. If there is something that we depend on for strength, meaning, happiness, and hope, more than we depend on anything else, that is what we worship. That is what we could call, for these purposes, our God. Uh, Our gods are the things that we will sacrifice just about anything for. And we will continue to sacrifice for that God, even when that God takes from its worshipers more than he or she gives to his or her worshipers. So, what do I mean by this? So, Derek Thompson wrote this um, very convicting, thoughtful essay in The Atlantic called, uh, Workism is Making Americans Miserable. That's the title, Workism. Here's his thesis. For the college-educated elite especially, work has morphed into a religious identity, promising transcendence and community, but failing to deliver. And then one of the headings in his essay, he titles it this way, The Gospel of Work. He goes on and he says, The decline of traditional faith has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty. It's interesting that he ties worship of beauty with atheism. Some people worship beauty. Some people worship political identities. And others worship their children, just to name a few. But everybody worships something. Workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. What is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary for economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. Human welfare must always encourage more work. And so, nothing against work. Uh, I mean, we, we have a, a whole institute out of Christ Pres about integrating faith and work. But what, what Derek Thompson is talking about here is turning work into an object of worship, taking this good thing that God has created and turning it into our ultimate thing and as a God replacement, as a Jesus substitute, as our ultimate salvation. But the problem is, eventually we get old, we get, you know, we, we get pushed out or, or we, we age out of work, and then let's say we have X number of years remaining, where does our meaning, where does our purpose come from then? You know, the word for this thing that Derek Thompson is trying to get at is idolatry. It's taking any good thing and trying to make it into our ultimate thing as a substitute for what God and God alone can be for us. Now, how do we identify our idols? There there, there are a number of ways that we can do this. There have been plenty of books written on it, plenty of essays and articles and sermons preached, but I'll just throw out a few, a few possibilities in terms of how we can diagnose where our worship is. First of all, our spending. 
Where do we spend money, focus, and energy most willingly and most exhaustively? That's one question. Secondly, scheduling. For what reason, for what purpose do we find in ourselves not only a willingness but but a great ease of cutting out biblical priorities that God has put in front of us? Priorities like the ones we talk about on, on a regular basis here, being fully present with the local church every single Sunday, being fully present with Jesus and the Scriptures and a life of prayer every single day, um, those rhythms that God has said will contribute to our flourishing and without which will, will diminish our flourishing. What, what makes it the easiest for us to say no to those things because we feel we must devote the time to this instead? You know, where are we willing to steal time from God in order to make time for something else? Third, a third uh, litmus test would be our ethics. Where are we most willing to explain away, to ignore, to disobey what God commands? Because this thing has become our new non-negotiable, whatever that thing might be. And then finally, family. In what areas of life are we most willing for our children, for our spouse, to pay a price? so that we can have it, so that we can keep chasing after it in order to keep our God intact. So, everybody worships something, and that's what, what the ancients understood, maybe in ways that we need to rediscover. If we're not giving our hearts to Christ or to Elijah's God, we're giving our hearts and our lives and our energy to something because we're wired to do that. So, secondly, false worship is a devastating sickness. It's not a neutral thing. And, and you know, Elijah's trying to press this point home where, he, where he's saying to these people, why do you keep wavering between two opinions? Why will you not go with, with Yahweh alone, with the Lord alone, with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alone? Why won't you go with him alone? Why are you wavering? Well, it's because we, we, we just feel like we need to poach the benefits from, and harvest the benefits from every option that we have. We don't want to cut off our options, right? We don't want to become so closed-minded that we miss out on what Baal might offer. Even though we, we remain loyal to Yahweh, we still attend the temple every now and then, but, but we don't want to miss out on what Baal could bring. You know, forget what Chesterton said, that the purpose of an open mind is the same as the purpose of an open mouth, to eventually shut it on that which is solid and healthy and life-giving. And so, so it's no wonder that, that, that Ahab, who, who wants Israel to have all of these gods under his reign, calls Elijah the troubler of Israel. You're a troubler. You're a nuisance. You're a problem. You're an irritant. Whereas God would say, no, he's a smelling salt. And I'm giving him to you to awaken you from your own stupor. And so what Elijah does is he comes in and he challenges the 450 prophets of Baal to a duel of the gods. It'll be me against you. It'll be my prayers against your 450 prophets' 
prayers. I'll pray to my God. You pray to your God. Let's see what happens. We'll set up a couple of altars. Whoever can call fire down from heaven, whoever's God answers is the one true and living God. And they're like, hey, that's great because Baal is especially known as the god of fire and rain. So we've got the competitive edge here. We've got the numbers and and we've got the specialization. And all day long, these 450 prophets, because what Elijah says is, y'all go first. You go first. And they cry out, they dance for hours, and they get nothing but crickets. They're sweating themselves to to oblivion. And what does Elijah do? He does the seeker-sensitive thing. He does the culturally relevant thing and mocks them. Cry aloud. You don't see this in the church planting and church growth literature in America, let me tell you. Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. He's mocking them. Why is he doing this? You know, Elijah's whole purpose is to press these people with the question, how is your God working out for you? How's it working? Is it making you stronger? Is it making you better? Is it making you happier, more hopeful, more confident? How's it working out for you? How's workism working out for you? How's the worship of your own beauty working out for you? How's the worship of your own political identity working out for you? How's it working out for you? Centering every single aspect of your life around your children. How's it working out? Is it making you happy? Is it making them happy? Or are you just turning them into little narcissists? And are you discovering that the most miserable people in the world are the ones who are the most self-centered ones? His whole purpose is to serve as a smelling salt. And he says to the people and to the prophets the same thing. First to the people in verse 21, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Limping. That's not a word of strength. And then to Baal's prophets, they limped around the altar that they had made. And then verse 28, they cried, they cut themselves until the blood gushed out upon them. They raved on until the time of the offering, but there was no voice from this presumed God that they worshiped. No one answered, no one paid attention. So this word limping is a metaphor for how all idolatry, all worship of, of, of anything, all giving of our time, resources, and energy most willingly to anything other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in every area of our lives. How all ident- idolatry impacts the worshiper, limping. It has a weakening effect. You, you can even say, well, I, I worship Jesus, I go to church, I read the Bible, but I'm also in bed with dishonesty at work. Or I'm also in bed with rage at home. Or I'm also you know, in bed with 
with, 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 uh, with narcissism uh, in terms of the, just the obsession that I have of, of, of looking good in every environment that I step into, Jesus and, and, and Yahweh will not work for us when we invite others into the bed any more than our marriage will grow more intimate when we invite somebody else into the intimacy. Better to not be married at all than to try to invite other lovers into the marriage bed. It's no wonder that, 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 that the Lord, especially throughout the Old Testament, is always comparing idolatry and adultery to one another. It's like they're one and the, th- one and the same. Adultery diminishes the adulterer. <laughs> Limping. You know, David Foster Wallace at his famous in his famous speech, which is a commencement speech at Kenyon College called This is Water, you can Google it, says this, pretty much anything besides God that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, you'll never have enough. If you worship your own body, beauty, and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly, and when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If you worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. If you worship your intellect, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. You heard the Johnny Cash uh, cover of uh, the Nine Inch Nails song called Hurt. Such haunting lines, and, 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 and it works perfect, perfectly for, for the limping effect of idolatry. You can have it all. My empire of dirt, I will let you down, I will, make you, I will make you hurt. Behold your God, if your God is not the God of Elijah, and if your God is not the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. False worship is a devastating sickness, and finally, here's the reason to go with Elijah's God if we, if we haven't discerned the reason yet. All day long, 450 prophets spend themselves to get a response from Baal, and they get nothing. For 30 seconds, one prophet of Yahweh prays calmly to get a response. Oh, by the way, after dumping three buckets of water all over the offering that the the fire from heaven was supposed to come down and burn, and down comes the fire. It goes this way. Elijah, he pours water on the burnt offering in the wood three times, then he prays, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then Elijah says, this is curious, now seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape, and he slaughtered them. What's that about? Good question. I don't know. But what I do know is that in the next chapter, the Lord begins to set up Elijah's succession. 
In the next chapter, it's announced that Elijah has a shelf life, and Elisha will come in next as the primary prophet of Israel. This is what happened with Moses when Moses lost his temper and became embittered toward the grumbling people of Israel. He disqualified himself from going into the promised land, and the Lord said, prepare to die. I'm replacing you with Joshua, who's going to finish the job. I don't know if that's exactly what's going on here, but it feels like maybe that's part of the picture. You know, the late Francis Schaeffer once said, in doing the Lord's work, we must always do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. So in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 9, this very passage, this very incident on Mount Carmel was referred to by the disciples as they passed through Samaria with Jesus. And the disciples did not think highly of the Samaritans any more than Elijah thought highly of the prophets of Baal. And the, the, the uh, disciples said to Jesus, hey, great time, don't you think, to call fire down from heaven again on these people? And what, is, what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. He rebukes them. There will be no slaughter here. There will be no mutilation here. There will be no mocking here. You ask for things you don't understand, and then later on in the Great Commission, who does Jesus include in the Great Commission but Samaria? Now, why would Jesus take such a different approach than Elijah the prophet? Because Jesus is unique among all the gods. Unlike Baal, he's not imaginary, and the fire proves it. So do all the miracles, walking on water, turning water into wine, feeding 5,000 with a few loaves of bread, and so on. And of course, his resurrection from the dead with over 500 eyewitnesses. Jesus is also unique in that he is not vindictive like the pagan and Canaanite gods. The false gods will mutilate you, but Jesus was the God who willingly became mutilated in order to put us back together. The false gods demand that people, that their worshipers perform for them and wear themselves out for them. Jesus performed perfectly and wore himself out so that you and I could live in rest and live in a place of Sabbath in our hearts and with our lives, knowing that we have fallen short, but He has accomplished everything and finished the work on our behalf. The false gods will demand, and they will take your blood, and they will take the life out of you. Jesus gives His blood to put life back into you. This is my body. This is my blood given for you to nourish you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus alone is the God who limped, and He limped to the cross so that we could, as Isaiah says, mount up with wings like eagles and walk and not grow weary and run and not be faint. Jesus is the one who cried out to God and got no answer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would always have an answer when we cry out to God. I'm with you always 
even to the very end of the age. You live in hope because the best days are always ahead of you and never behind you. The new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem are coming. And it's Jesus who bled out, was mutilated and bled out in order to fill our cup. So why on earth would we want to waver so as to limp when we could worship the Lord and serve Him only so as to soar? So I'll leave all of us with that question as we now transition to the Lord's table and the supper that He's prepared for us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for for wheat that has been crushed and killed so that we could have bread today. And Lord, we thank You for grapes that have also been crushed and killed so that we could have the fruit of the vine to drink and to take into our bodies today. It's this mysterious reality, Lord. It, it, it's, it's almost as if this is the way you set the universe to run in a fallen and broken world for fallen and broken people. For us to live, somebody else has to die. And that person was you, Jesus, because you're not just a person. You are the true and living God. You are, you are the paragon of all virtue and goodness and truth and beauty. You and you alone qualify to spend yourself, to exhaust yourself, to be mutilated, and to bleed out in order to accomplish something. We thank you, Lord, that in your limping, you soared to victory. This is such a paradox, Lord, that the cross, which, which seemed like such devastation, was your greatest win along with the resurrection. And so, Lord, wherever we might be in our hearts today, may we not limp by wavering between various opinions about who and what to worship and serve. Would we worship you and you only, Lord Jesus? And we w- would we put all of the other good things that we're tempted to worship beneath you so that we don't worship them, but, but instead we, we see them and, and, and utilize them as avenues and vehicles through which to worship you, through our work, through our relationships, through our, um, our family dynamics, through... Uh, our social activity, through everything that you give us, Lord, through our leisure, through our play. May we worship you through all of those things so that they don't drive us into the ground, but instead just become avenues of life lived before the face of God. Strengthen us, nourish us toward these things as we now receive from the body and the blood given for us in remembrance of you, Lord Jesus. Set this bread apart, set this cup apart, consecrate them, sanctify them, that they may give us strength and nourishment to worship and follow you alone, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.